by the second day of the retreat, we usually know that we are in a confrontation with reality. It's kind of hard to deceive ourselves very much after 48 hours of practice. The different strategies that we use to want to get away from being present, we see that they're usually not so effective unless we actually get in the car and leave. (laughs) That might be effective. (laughs) But when we're actually here and paying attention to both the technique of being present and while we're doing that, watching all the ways that interfere with that attempt to be present. And that seems to be what is going on mostly. The practice, the intention of staying present, mindfulness, and then what we recognize as obstacles and interferences. So that's why we usually mention the five hindrances that were laid down by the Buddha because, you know, the Buddha 2,500 years ago said, this is what's going to happen, right? So it's not, a, it's not a big surprise. It's not like some kind of like, what? This isn't supposed to happen. You know, it's part of the, it's part of the path. So these hindrances of... Um, the wanting mind and the not wanting mind, or greed and aversion, the, the first two, and then sleepiness and restlessness, those two that, that play together, and then the last one, the doubt, the doubt that arises because the other four hindrances are playing and we think they shouldn't be, and so then we start doubting our practice. So it becomes the fifth hindrance, and as I said yesterday, when they kind of all are playing at the same time, (laughs) then we have this multiple hindrance attack. And probably everybody's experienced that at one time or another. It just uh, feels like everything's happening all at once and there's no, no, no way to deal with it at all. So we really find out that we are not really having the experiences that we want to be having. That's usually what is happening in the mind. It's like something's going on that I don't really want this going on and how could I get it not to be going on? (laughs) And that's a lot of what we are busy with. And with the sense, uh, the, the idea or the image of what we actually would like to have going on. So there's that, that whole mechanism operating within us. Unless we're also just here present, paying attention to that mechanism, then we also have that quality of presence that sees it all. And maybe we're not quite as identified, quite as caught in it, and yet we still see it going on. So this is really what happens. You know, sometimes it's a surprise because we think, well, aren't we just supposed to drop into concentration and then everything gets easier and we just open up and uh, you have a good time. 
And so sometimes people are a little surprised by the difficulty, surprised by the challenge of the practice, particularly in the beginning, and can easily use the experiences as a way to judge yourself or undermine yourself, think that you're doing something wrong or that you've you lost your way, which is the doubt again and the judgment. And so it's we I talk about it just to just to really contextualize the experience so you understand that you're right on track. <laughs> you know, somehow take it out of the personal. Because it's just it, we, we just identify with the experiences so much we think something must be wrong. And yet, it isn't. It's, uh, it's, it's how we actually begin to see and understand and reflect and then start to work with these experiences so that we're not so identified with them and start to be more free of those identifications. This, these hindrances, the grasping and the aversion and, and Aspects of the sleepiness and restlessness, not all of the sleepiness and restlessness, but some of it and the doubt, are all manifestations of what we call the ego activity. This selfing, the sense of self that is wanting to, is trying to manipulate the experience to its own end. Trying to get some, some kind of experience that feels good or is preferable or matches the image of uh, what we think would fit for who we take ourselves to be. You know, I'm, um, I'm, a, I'm a better meditator than this. You know, I, I've been meditating for 15 years, you know. Um, this shouldn't be happening at this stage of my practice. You know, so then we're a little surprised or disappointed, you know, because it doesn't match the image, <laughs> you know, which is just more ego activity. Right, because there's some sense of who we take ourselves to be, and then, you know, seeing having an experience that doesn't kind of fit that identity, so we get a little shaken up by that. The grasping and the aversion are sort of more overt uh, manifestations of this manipulation, this uh, trying to shape and control and manage our experience so we can kind of get it the way we we want it or like it. The sleepiness and uh, the dullness in the mind, the boredom, it can be a way of rejecting our experience because it's just too much or we don't like being here, we don't really want to deal with it. It's just uh, easier just to dull out. It's just easier. Or it's just to be bored. Boredom is just like, well, what do I do anyhow? There's nothing really going on. It's so kind of empty and nothing and simple and it's just so boring you know which is a, just another way it's kind of it can be another defense against all that really is going on we just don't want to look at it right or the restlessness you know the restlessness can be a lot of energy that just becomes a kind of another obscuration from the settling from the stilling from the stopping because if we stop what are we going to find what are we going to feel? What are we going to experience? So it's better just to <laughs> stay restless and busy and agitated because then I, I don't have to feel anything else, right? So these different kinds of, uh, we call them defensive activities or ego activity that keeps us from going deeper into the pool, the deep pool of our consciousness and the doubt, the doubting mind. And I wanted to um, 
uh, I love the similes that uh, from the Buddha of these five uh, hindrances because I think that they really give a feel, a texture for each one of these. Many of you have heard them, but they're so beautiful. When we're caught in the desire, the grasping, the sense desires, which is usually grasping onto something pleasant, something that we think is going to make us feel good, it's as if you, if you imagine a clear pool, forest pool, and you pour colored dyes into that pool, you can get mesmerized by the dyes and miss the depth of the pool. You get distracted by the beauty. Mm, I want that. That's pretty. And then we can't, we don't really go deeper. Or the aversion, the opposite, the aversion, the anger, the rejecting is, 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 sim- is similar to if the pool was like a hot pool. Uh, it, it had hot water pouring into it. It was kind of bubbling like in some of the hot springs. And the bubbling and the heat from the, from the uh, uh, hot springs, the whole surface of the water was dis- disturbed and hot and you couldn't see down to the bottom of the pool, to the depths of the pool where it's cool and still. The aversion is kind of like that in the mind. It's hot. And the sleepiness is like if the pool was filled with algae and it's just kind of thick and murky and you can't see much of anything. It's just like this kind of thick, (laughs) dense kind of state of mind and you can't really go see down to the depths. Or the restlessness is like if a wind comes along the surface of the pond and the pond is all agitated just on the surface and again you can't see down to the depths. And the doubt is, the doubt's a really interesting one. It's as if somebody took a big stick and just went and started stirring the bottom of the pool and all the mud started coming up and the whole pool just got murky and muddy and we can't see anything <laughs> clearly. You, you know, there's no depth, there's no sur- it's all muddy and murky. That's what doubt is like. Just totally obscures any kind of clear view. And so these are the different kinds of states. They're called the five difficult mind states that, were, that, that, that play in our consciousness when we haven't uh, uh, co- connected or contacted the, the more still and cool and quiet place within ourselves. When we're still kind of at the uh, surface level of the ego mind, where the ego mind still has a very strong force and is pulling and tugging and dictating and and we're we're still caught somewhat at that at that at that level of our reality and we're not able to sink down to drop down to to feel into that um, the quiet stillness of our consciousness of our being so that's why we pay attention to these we notice these because if we cling to them as me or mine, and we take them on as our, our identity. I'm, I'm sleepy and I'm never going to be able to meditate, or I have so much doubt in my mind I'm never going to clear it. If we have that kind of identification with any of these mind states, then we just keep reinforcing that ego identity, that sense of self, and we don't really get through it. 
But if we can see these states as arising and passing, they come and they go, they're not as solid as we take them to be. You can reflect on your whole day and you can see, yeah, there were days, times in the days you were really sleepy, but other times you were more clear and, and settled and other times maybe more restless and sometimes the doubt comes and judgment, but other times it d dies away and you just here again. And you see that these states don't have really much solidity at all, but it's when we identify with them, when we take them to be me, mine, then that's where we, we, we feel more fixed and rigid and caught in that identity, that view of who I take myself to be. So we really want to see that they're just um, kind of movements on the landscape of our mind, of our consciousness. They come and go. And as much as possible uh, to not get caught in them as who I am or, or what how I build a sense of myself up. Just that sense of the coming and the going, the arising and passing, just as all things, all things come and go. The primary movement of our mind, and you can see this, whether there's sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt, is the liking and the disliking, the first two hindrances where we get caught in this, I like it, I don't like it. I want it, I don't want it. And it's, this is the movement, this is the primary movement of the ego mind, of this uh, picking and choosing and attaching and rejecting and liking and disliking. And when we really, if you sense into your experience over the last two days, you might kind of get a feeling for this kind of pushing and pulling and, and I, as I'm, I'm doing, I can feel this even energetically kind of, the, it makes me seasick, you know, just kind of pulling and pushing and pulling, wanting and not wanting and trying to grab on and trying to push away and trying to, it's like we're just really caught in this activity of mind that has all these strong preferences for the way that we want things to be. So, so we, you know, with our attention, we're really wanting to see how that operates within our own mind, this liking and disliking, this picking and choosing, rejecting and grasping. It's the primary um, uh, uh, force in the mind that the Buddha says is, in the second noble truth of the Buddha, the cause of our suffering, this grasping. Grasping is both the attaching and the rejecting. It's the, when we try to hold on and manipulate, this is, the, as the, the, the Buddha says, this, the cause of suffering, the cause of our dukkha. So we really pay attention to that. That's an, and, and, and when you're in a situation like this, you have so many opportunities, don't you? <laughs> because you're not so caught up in your ordinary kind of busyness of your, of your daily life and you're bringing more attention to the subtlety of that movement of mind and you can really feel it and sense it and recognize it and then perhaps start to release the uh, hold, uh, release the grasping that you experience within yourself and see if you can just be more present, more settled, more still, slow down, begin to stop. And something starts to shift. When in, in the beginning of my meditation practice, um, uh, when Ram Das, the, the great uh, teacher, was still around, he, he had the, um, 
these little tiny books printed. They're, they were the um, verses on the faith mind from the third Zen patriarch. And the, the third Zen patriarch is from the uh, 606 AD in China, long time ago. And there was this little tiny book that was translated from uh, a Chinese, and Ramdas had it had thousands printed up and just handed them out to people on little part. It was parchment parchment paper, and I remember having this uh, the verses of the faith mind, and it, and I, I pulled it up. I just got it off the internet because I I didn't have uh, my little book with me, and I really wanted to recite these lines because I, I they're 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 uh, uh, words that, that one of those that you can just use as a spiritual practice and just continue to reflect on and contemplate the deep meaning of these words. Some of you probably heard it. So it goes like this. This is the first verse, and there are many verses, but this is the very first verse. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, when love and hate is the, the, the greed and the desire, the greed and the aversion. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And just to be clear, when he says when love and hate, when love and hate, so he's just using love as the opposite, so the dualistic kind of. It's not love in the more universal, uh, heartful expression of love, but the the grasping, attached love is what is being referred to here as the opposite of hate. So when love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. And then Stephen Mitchell, later um, a poet uh, who's in our, our community, uh, retranslated the first line as, the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. And in some ways, that's actually more accurate because we all have preferences. We all like certain kinds of ice cream and not other kinds of ice cream. Some people like to take walks in nature. Some people love to go party in the city at night. You know, everybody has preferences. <laughs> so really, what we're looking at is not whether we have preferences. It's whether we're attached to our preferences, whether we're holding on, whether we cling to our preferences, because that's what's going to make us happy. That's what's going to bring that lasting fulfillment, if I just get that one thing, if I could just have that, if I could have that experience, if I could have that mind state, if I could have the quality that that person has, then I'd be a really wonderful person. If I could just be as heartful as they are or as kind as they are, because I'm just, 
you know, I'm just so mean <laughs> and, and mean-spirited. <laughs> you know, it's like we don't see clearly. Things are, as he says, everything, if we will let go of that, everything becomes clear and undisguised. In other words, when we're caught in wanting and not wanting, liking and disliking, everything is unclear and disguised. We're not seeing clearly. So we want to pay attention. We're paying attention to this movement of mind, these, this particular hindrance that the Buddha is speaking about, the, the grasping, the aversion, which is not really just a hindrance but the cause of all of our suffering, cause of all of our dukkha, this profound insight from the Buddha, which really pointed us in that direction. As the Buddha said, I discovered things that had never been seen before. And this is really the radical insight of the Buddha, to see where this root, where this cause of suffering arises in us. So we come here on a retreat and we create these very supportive conditions. These supportive conditions of the um, silence and the the schedule and the the teachings and the the technique of the practices and the, and the, the, the nourishment of the food and the community, the things I've been speaking about, this beautiful, serene environment. We, we create these conditions so that we can let go because it's so hard to let go of our grasping and our attachments. And so in a way, this, the conditions here form a kind of padding for us, a kind of safety net because we want to let go. But if we're in a situation in our lives that is structured in a certain way, that is busy and somewhat chaotic, and there are certain things that don't feel safe and somewhat threatening, and we live in a world that feels somewhat chaotic and threatening and unprotected and, you know, crazy in many ways, then it's not so easy to let go. We need to hold on to a lot of our strategies because otherwise, how do we think we're going to function? function well. And yet we know that a lot of the things that we're holding on to aren't giving us the fulfillment or the support or the uh, spiritual um, uh, support that we need. But yet we're kind of caught. We can feel caught sometimes between, you know, what what our heart and the deepest part of us is calling for and uh, what our reality is. The situation just doesn't provide that safety. So coming to a retreat and coming to this kind of environment actually gives us this, this cushion or this padding. And we, when we feel our, our being, our, 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 the sense of self that feels a little bit threatened by this letting go, says, yeah, maybe it's safe here. It feels pretty comfortable. It's a bit easier here. Maybe I can start to look at some of these things I'm holding on to in my mind and my body and my heart and my life and start to consider whether I can let go. And everybody in this room is exploring that edge, that edge of what you really need in terms of your 
structuring and your safety and your functioning and what you can let go of. That edge. What do I need and what do I don't need? What do I want and what do I don't? What do, what do I? What do I don't want? And this kind of this is a kind of contemplation of the heart. The contemplation of the heart, because we know that we're carrying a lot that we don't need to be carrying. Because what we carry manifests as suffering. What we carry manifests as dukkha. Dukkha, this wonderful word, this uh, Pali word that means unsatisfactory, unfulfilling, um, painful, stressful, anxiety-producing. We know that if we feel conditions in our mind at any, at any, at any, in any level that are painful or stressful or anxiety-provoking, we're holding on to something. Because it's only through holding on that we suffer. When we let go, we let go of our suffering. I think it was Ajahn Chah that said, if you, go, if you let go a, a little, then you, you suffer a little. I think it's something like this. Say, what is it? If you if you let go a little, you'll get a little peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, <laughs> you get complete peace. Right? Yeah. So so we're looking at what our capacity is here for letting go and our readiness to let go. And this letting go can't happen from any kind of um, kind of pushing or expectation or demand or this manipulating because then we're back in the ego activity again. We're just reinforcing those same habits that we're trying to get away from. If we're grasping and aversive and doubting and going through all that, we're just, we're just in the repetition. So we can't use those strategies to let go. Seems like the only real support for the letting go are these loving, nourishing, caring kinds of conditions where we then can say, okay, things are all right now, I can let go. <laughs> I feel a little more safe and at ease and I can relax. And it's really through the relaxation. It's when we start to feel like we can relax that we will relax. Which is why it's really so important that we are generating conditions in our life that give support for that relaxation and that opening. And we, in, in truth be told, I mean, as you continue walking this path, you really become rather vigilant in looking at all of those conditions and whether they're supportive or not supportive of your spiritual awakening. Because the spiritual awakening becomes central at some point. If you're serious and committed and you continue on, that no longer can you really have anything that is, is not going to be a support for this awakening, for this liberation. So it's a it's again it's a radical 
It's radical. But we don't let go of those things until we're ready, until, until there's a certain kind of alignment with our own truth. We, we, it's a gradual path. It's a gradual path. We walk gradually, respectfully, carefully, assessing and evaluating and letting go along the way. We don't have to get out the scalpel. <laughs> Although some there's some teachers or some teachings, some traditions that can it seems like that's what they're talking about, but I'm not sure we really need that. <laughs> no, we can take our time in a respectful way, in a kind way, but not in a forgetful way, not in a way that we kind of become complacent and lose connection with our sense of passion and sense of urgency about the task at hand. So we really need support. We need support in our lives in order to let go. In a way, it's kind of, we might talk about it as building bridges, you know, that we can walk across to the other shore. We know there's somewhere we want to go. We have aspirations for ourselves. But we, we need to be um, wise in the way that we approach this. And that's what makes the path so difficult because it's not so clear what that wise path is or what that direction is. And so we sort of are finding our way in the, be the best way that we possibly can. We're doing the best that we possibly can under the circumstances. And that's where also it's helpful to, to reflect to reflect on our own goodness and our own um, uh, sense of in, in intention and motivation that we really are doing the best we can. Even though it may not appear that way or we may our, our internal judge may not uh, respect the way that we're doing it. <laughs> internal voices have different ideas about how things should be or could be or should look like. But again, reflecting on our own goodness of heart or purity of heart as we walk this path, as we walk the, the path of spiritual awakening. For the ego, the reason the ego is so busy and so active is because the ego thinks it lives in the world of duality, of self and other. It has a very strong belief in this fixation. And it seems from that view of self and other that the world is very chaotic. The world is very unsteady. It's unreliable. It's untrustworthy. It's on, uh, uh, it's, even, it's even rather threatening. And so the ego needs to create all these strategies to protect itself. And the way it protects itself is by drawing in. We pull in. It's a kind of contractedness, 
a contraction. And in that contraction, we feel ourselves as more rigid, as more dense, which verifies the sense of separation and difference than everything. We feel separate. We feel isolated. We feel um, like I am an, a separate entity. And it's this kind of the fear and the, uh, the, the, the view of, of the, the, the world being threatening in this way that we, we need to sustain this view. We need to sustain this position because letting go means that we have to start testing out whether that's true or not, whether this world is a, a, a scary and threatening and chaotic place. And that I, therefore, if it is, I don't have the capacity to deal with it, so therefore I have to protect myself and, and kind of hide and, 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 and sometimes, for some people, make myself invisible. I, I can't even really be here. It's so threatening and so scary. And so these are, this is some way that the, the ego starts to uh, take shape, take form, because of this particular view so it's wanting to seek some kind of solid ground so that, so that I don't get swept away in all of the chaos, in all of the flurry. I, I need something to anchor myself with. And so the way we anchor ourselves is to really believe in this sense of that I am this separate, solid thing, because if I'm not solid, I'm just going to get swept away. So I've got to anchor down. We've got to hunker down. And yet as we do this, we feel almost a kind of um, imprison imprisonment. You know, like, like we sometimes can feel even trapped in our own worldview, in our own way of being. We feel kind of locked in and, and, and then not sure how to get out. Not really seeing that some ways that we've created this for ourselves. But the thing is, you know, as much as we want to protect and, and isolate and, and, and hold on, as Wes Nisker says, one of our teachers of Spirit Rock, shit happens. <laughs> right? <laughs> Life goes on, you know? And when I was reflecting on this, you know, I'm thinking about all the fires down in Southern California that were going on right before I came, you know. Um, Multi-million dollar homes just being burned away. You know, 30,000 people who are, you know, very um, wealthy, um, prestigious uh, people, you know, just, just having to go to uh, homeless shelters and wondering what's happening with their home and all their possessions and, and, and their, their whole life uh, uh, in, in, their, in their house, you know? It's like, it's like the, the universe doesn't stop its manifestation of, of life just because we found a nice way to protect ourselves. We're still getting sick and we're aging and dying, still going on, whether we find ways to hunker down and anchor down and, and, and build nice safe walls around ourselves, still goes on. This is the Dharma, the Dharma. 
everything that is born, everything that comes into life, passes away. All conditions arise and pass. And we are made, this body, this mind, is made up of those conditions. The same conditions of all of nature. Come and they go, arise and pass, just as we've seen with all these mind states over these last two days, just coming and going, these mind states and experiences that we take to be me, take to be I, but where are they? Where is it all now? These, these things that we liked so well, that we want to hold on to, that we want to possess and call our own, identify with me as me, mine, I, where is it all? Things are a little bit different as we sit here in this moment than they were this morning. Joni Mitchell, the wonderful singer, she says, uh, has a wonderful line. I think it's one of her songs. She says, everything comes and goes, Mark, everything comes and goes, marked by lovers and styles of clothes. <laughs> this truth of impermanence, one of the most profound truths of the Buddha in our teachings here is this anicca, anicca, the truth of impermanence, that everything that we take to be me is going to pass away. We take this mind to be me, it's going to change. And, and we all know what happens as we age, this, our wonderful memory, right? The way we, re we had this very strong memory and now we can hardly remember anything, you know? The mind sort of vacates, <laughs> you know? Or our body, you know, this youthful, you know, very healthy, for many of us, body. What happens? We see, and it's like the evidence is right before us, and yet it's so hard to go deeper into the truth of this anicca. We want to cover over this truth, and it's the ego. The ego wants to cover over because it's so bil busy building these solid structures all around to protect us from the truth, protect ourselves from the truth. Because what would happen if we face the truth? What happens if we face it? Why don't we face the truth? What makes it so hard to let go? To let go into the stream, to let go into the Dharma, let go into nature, be one with nature. What makes it so hard to recognize that that is the truth of who we are? That our nature, my nature, your nature, is not any different than the nature of this whole world that is coming and going. And as we recognize this truth more completely, we become one with the stream, one with the flow of nature, one with the flow of the universe. And this is where these, sometimes they sound a little new agey, you know, you become one with the universe, you know. <laughs> but they, there's a reason that these are popular. <laughs> there's, it's not because somebody made them up. <laughs> there's some validity to these, 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 these sayings, these adages, you know? Go with the flow, you know? 
was popular. Just go with the flow, man. You know? It's kind of <laughs> because there is a flow. There's a flow to go with. <laughs> and this is what we're trying to feel into. We're trying to sense into. What would it mean just to go with the flow? Or to become one with the stream, to, to flow down, be like you're in a little boat flowing down the river, you know? Like row, row, row your boat, floating down the stream, merrily, 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 nothing but a dream, you know? Flowing down the river. Just before I, uh, when actually when I was looking for the, um, the great way, the third Zen patriarch. I got an email. Um, you know, when I go on, when you go online, all your emails pop into the inbox. So it's very tempting to look at your emails. You know, it's very dangerous going into your computer. But I got this, got this email from a friend, who said that there was going to be a um, uh, uh, a meeting at uh, our friend's house with a speaker uh, next week. And um, I don't know if, if you all have heard, it's, it was a very, very big thing in, a, in the States uh, uh, this last four or five months of the Bernie Madoff uh, Ponzi scheme. And uh, uh, Bernie Madoff uh, was an investor and uh, a president of an of a investment company. And he wound up, it was going on for about 30 years, but taking about, mm, seems like, it seems like something phenomenal, like $20 billion of people's money uh, over the last 30 years. And he was not really investing it in anything. And he was using the people's money that, that they were sending him for investments and then just paying off fake interest interest and profits from other people's money, and it was just circulating. There was absolutely nothing holding anybody's security together. And it, it was so widespread, it went out to even like some of the, a couple banks like in Switzerland were investing with Bernie Madoff, and you know, and then about five months ago, Bernie, good old Bernie, <laughs> couldn't live with it anymore, and he confessed. And so as soon as he confessed, and of course everybody, like thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, immediately had their life savings wiped out. And Bernie only worked with very, very wealthy people, so that's how he got people to invest, because it was kind of, if you could invest with Bernie, you were somebody. So he got very, very wealthy people. Mostly people found out about it on golf, golf clubs and at um, uh, uh, country clubs, and, and you were in if you could invest with Bernie. So everybody trusted him. And then m many people, and it's so widespread that I know about six people personally who were affected by this. So this, there's a man who's going to come and speak about how he lost his whole life savings next week. And this is what the email said. It was titled, what Bernie Madoff couldn't, could not steal from me. <laughs> this, man, this man was on vacation in Antarctica when he learned via satellite telephone that he had lost his entire life savings in the Bernie Madoff sca scandal. And so it really means, like we're talking about anybody who lost money was probably had, oh, probably a million or two million dollars or more 
five million invested with Bernie Madoff. So we're not talking about maybe $100,000 or something. We're talking about millions. And so this is what this man wrote as you know part of what he's going to be speaking about. He said, but there is something else I discovered that is much more important, says Matt, and that's how to survive life's inevitable downturns with a sense of basic trust so that you can land on your feet no matter what. Yes, I lost my life savings in the Bernie Madoff fraud, but there are life-saving survival secrets that Madoff could never steal from me. Now that's, that's metal. You know, for me, that's impressive. You know, that kind, you know, when we, when we put our security, this, our sense of our, what's going to keep us safe, and secure in our money. And then when that's just wiped out, <laughs> how, how would you feel if that was the only support that you knew? That there wasn't really a sense of where to land in your own being. And you think that that's who you are. You are the person who had millions of dollars and so you're, you were fine, right? And then one day it's taken away. Now, if that isn't going to reveal something <laughs> about where you live, then nothing is. You know, just like that. And so, this, so, so, so many people, so many people who were affected, that this, this is a very powerful teaching. Because they, they're forced to look to find something, some ground, something to help them anchor in a way that they've never had to anchor before. They've never had to ground before. They've never had to find anything inside. They didn't have to. Maybe they did, but they didn't have to. So where is it? You could feel like you're floating out at sea. You're lost. You're drifting. Everything's gone. Everything's stripped away. And yet, is it? Is everything stripped away? Perhaps everything in the worldly conditions are stripped away. But if that's all we think there is, the things of this world, this body, this mind, this, the people, our relationships, our jobs, our investments, our homes, our anything else that we put our security in, we think that's who I am. That's an extension of myself and my identity. And when all that goes, who am I? What's there? Because it's all going to go. Sometimes it goes slowly, like just the aging or when old clothes get worn out or, you know, food rots in the refrigerator. <laughs> you know, and sometimes whew, it just comes. Another woman who I was speaking with last year, there was another set of fires down in Santa Barbara in the early part of last year. It's been a very, very harsh time down there. And this woman, a young woman, she, um, uh, her, she had her family home there. She wasn't living there anymore. Her parents were living in the home. And the home <coughs> burnt down to the ground. And she had just gone down and visited her parents and uh, went to see her house, the house she grew up in as a child. She was only in her 20s. And she went down there and she stood 
on the foundation. And there were just a few kind of burnt rafters of the house. And she said she stood in the middle of the house and looked out, and she could see the expanse of the view, the nature and the hills and all around. And she said as she stood there, she could see where her bedroom was and that wasn't there anymore. Everything gone. Empty. And she said she felt such a deep sense of relief. She felt such a deep sense of freedom because she could just feel the openness of once, once there was structure, once there were walls, now it was open. And she could see, she could see far, she could see things she hadn't seen before. Her whole view had shifted in ways that she had been identified as the one who had grown up in that family and that was her bedroom and, you know, you know, you'd think, I mean, I was sitting there, she's only in her 20s, I'm sitting there kind of in awe that she's telling me what she's telling me, you know, and there wasn't really at that time, you know, any sense of grief, there was just a sense of, like, something flew open in her, that the, her own structure, the way she had structured herself, the way she had created her own house, her her, her, and, and was, was ca caught in that, the house of her identity related to her upbringing and her childhood and her parents and her family and all that. It just whew, wasn't there anymore. This freedom. It's very powerful. You know, we think that it's the end of the world, you know, the loss, the disappearance, the letting go especially when it can feel kind of brutal, some a loved one is taken away or gets sick or whatever, or, you know, we lose a relationship or a job or, you know, we get, we get sick or, you know, whatever it is, these more major things. We can feel like it's, it's a, like the end. It can feel like the end. But yet when we feel something else that is nothing to do with any of the conditions of this world, which we call the spiritual revelation or, or the spiritual insight, the, the spiritual recognition, then something else completely shifts in us. We don't feel lost. <laughs> we actually may feel more whole, more complete, more free in some way. And yet I think this recognition, this recognition that I'm speaking about, truly is a kind of grace. It's not something that we can make happen. It's not something we can expect. It's not something we really can even strive for. When there's a kind of revelation, there's a, an awakening within us, it's a blessing, you know, because where does it come from? <laughs> it's not, I, I didn't make it happen. <laughs> I can't take responsibility for it. I mean, certainly I may have put certain conditions in place, you know, done my hard work, done my, dis my disciplined practice, you know, really 
sat and walked and looked at my own mind and looked at my own heart, and all that certainly does contribute to the um, wearing away, kind of the wearing away of the hardness of the ego structure, the ego identity. It definitely all contributes, or we wouldn't do it. We definitely feel the, the, um, how that sense of who we take ourselves, doesn't, it starts to lighten up. There, we, we use this word um, transparent. We start to feel a little bit more transparent, like when the walls of the house fall down. You could, you could see a little bit more. There's a little bit more opening and openness and expansiveness and lightness of being. So that's, that sense of our identity does become uh, less. We can feel that through our spiritual practice. And then, and then maybe... One moment, it'll all come crashing down, if we're lucky. <laughs> may not seem like that's luck at the moment, but <laughs> if we're lucky, you know, everything that we're holding on to, everything that we cling on to, we want to possess, we think is going to make a difference in our life, you start to see it through it, and it loses its glimmer. It loses its sparkle. Those things just aren't sparkling in the same way. We start to see reality a little bit more as it is. And then we see what truly shines, what truly is bright and alive and luminous, rather than that which parades in disguise. So I'll read this from um, David White, a wonderful, reflective man, poet. He says, you start to realize after a while that the consuming wish for safety and security is the wish to hold yourself from the frontier experiences of your own life. There's nothing wrong with security and safety in their right place with our families and all the rest, but the individual human path and pilgrimage is a radical journey of encounter and appearance and disappearance. And if you take the understandings of safety too literally throughout your life, then you'll be unwilling to die at the appropriate moments and disappear. And you lose your sense of courage also, because when things get difficult, instead of leaping toward the center of the flame itself, you're looking for a place away from the heat. And I'll, I'll, and I'll read this next piece because I, I may not get a chance, and uh, I, th I think it's great. He says, there, there's, a way that you, there's a way that we should be eaten by life, that we should be absolutely consumed by it. There's nothing worse than getting to your deathbed and finding that you've been gummed to death, <laughs> that, <laughs> that you've never been able to give yourself over to the teeth of existence. <laughs> 
he says, your own life, I feel, is a very fierce thing to follow because it's constantly leading you into larger and larger imaginative territories for which you feel you're unprepared <laughs> and which you enter almost as a child no matter what time in your life you've gotten to. If you're truly following your life and your path, a part of you always will always feel like you are a child in a new world. You can never be prepared. <laughs> so maybe I'll leave it there. We'll certainly continue as we go through the retreat together. Let's sit for a moment. 